All right, everybody. Welcome back. This is episode 13. We're recording in late August now, uh, August 27th, 2020. I'm Jason Avedesian, and welcome to the PhD podcast. And I'm Harjeev. Welcome to the uh, PhD podcast for the 13th time. So today we have Kelsey Brick with us. She is going into her fifth year at the University of Delaware in the Biomechanics and Movement Science Department. Kelsey, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Kelsey, what we like to do as uh, just like a brief intro for people uh, to get familiar with you, could you just share a little bit of your background, uh, how you got to, to Delaware? You kind of, we talked a, a bit off air, but if you can just share uh, some of your experiences and what led you to your uh, current PhD work. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I am from Canada. So my undergrad was in neuroscience here at home in Win- good old Winnipeg, um, also known as Winterpeg. Um, we, uh, yeah, we have winters that get down to like minus 40. So that's why. Um, and then I hopped over to a place called Kelowna in British Columbia to do my master's, um, all sort of within the general neuroscience field. Um, and then as I was kind of winding down my master's, I came across the care consortium project, uh, in the USA. And at the time, nothing like that existed in Canada. So I thought, Oh, what the heck, why not? I'll, uh, check it out, see if I can somehow get into that project and continue with the concussion work that I had been doing. Um, so I reached out to some people who were kind of the higher ups of the project and said, you know, I'm looking to do a PhD. I'm interested in the project. Do want a student from Canada? Um, and they kind of spread my, name out to all the PIs of the project. I think there's like 35 schools involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And my now advisor uh, responded right away and said, hey, I'm looking for a PhD student. You would be funded. You'd be working on this project. So, you know, that was kind of, that's the short and sweet version of how I ended up at Delaware from Canada. (laughs) That's awesome. And you come from like a hockey background too, and concussions are pretty prevalent. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was actually hockey and kind of watching the NHL when I was younger in high school and undergrad that sort of got me interested in concussions. So, yeah, the care consortium has been uh, I've been following it ever since I got into the concussion world myself. There's been just a massive amount of research coming out of that project. So um, have you done directly work with the care consortium since you've been at Delaware? Like, have you led sort of projects or, or whatnot? Yeah. Um, so right when I got to Delaware in 2016, um, that, that fall, I was technically the, um, like a research assistant. Um, but essentially the role I had was, uh, the clinical coordinator of the project. Um, and so with that, you know, I was doing all the baseline testing for the student athletes. Uh, if they got a concussion, we followed up with them. I believe at the time it was five or six Mm follow-ups. Um, one of them being like a six month follow-up. And then, um, yeah, and it it just involved, you know, constantly talking to the athletes, the athletic trainers involved, the team physicians that were involved in diagnosing the concussions, um, all while trying to get through first year of a PhD program and do classes and whatnot. So, yeah, and I I did that for my first three years at Delaware. Um, Switched over to... I won a fellowship, so I switched over to that. And now I'm actually going back on the CARE project as of this fall. So in a couple of days, technically. <laughs> That's cool. I'm envious of you. I've like, when I saw that project, like, I wish I would have gone, I wish I would have been in your shoes like five years ago when that first started. Like, that's really neat. 
It's a pretty cool project. It's very time consuming when you're actually kind of like in the trenches doing all the testing. Right. But at the end of the day, you get to see some really cool data and, and say you were a part of it. So. So one of the things that we have, sorry about that. There's a phone ring in the background there. <laughs> one of the things that we have our, uh, our PhD students do uh, our episodes. Hold on a second. Sorry about that. No worries. So one of the things that we have our, our guests do is they share a research article with us and kind of how that influenced their current work. And Kelsey shared with us, and I thought it was a really great article, uh, preliminary evidence for improvement in symptoms, cognitive, vestibular, and ocular motor outcomes following target intervention with chronic MTBI, mild traumatic brain injury patients. And so this was from uh, Dr. Anthony Contos and out of the, the Pitt research group has done a lot was really the groundbreaking with the impact and all that stuff. Kelsey, if you wouldn't mind uh, just sharing with the listeners kind of how this research article uh, influenced the work that you're doing right now. And if you wouldn't just mind sharing a little bit of the background on what Dr. Contos and, and them do at Pitt that kind of influenced your work at Delaware. Yeah. Um, so I had been reading Dr. Contos's research for years and years prior to even coming to Delaware. So I was familiar with the name um, and, and uh, Michael or Mickey Collins is on it as well. So I recognize those two names. Um, and this paper specifically, um, it really, you know, I already had an interest in concussions and, and sort of looking at the more persistent uh, concussion or persistent symptom uh, population. And so when this paper came out, um, it really kind of changed the way people thought about concussions, um, especially chronic, uh, I guess, symptoms um, or patients. And so, you know, I, I read this paper and um, it, it very neatly kind of almost categorizes patients into different, uh, they call them clinical profiles. And so, um, you know, reading through this paper, it, it really occurred to me that, you know, we can't treat every concussion the same. Um, and I think, you know, when this paper came out in 2018, that was sort of a well-established, um, I guess, guideline uh, in terms of concussions. And so uh, when I read this paper, it was just kind of like, oh, I, I never even thought about sort of categorizing them into these, these clinical profiles and sort of... Um, you know, using that as, as a way to guide the, the management and the, the rehabilitation of concussions, whether, whether it is an acute concussion or chronic, this paper just happens to be in, in chronic MTI, MTBI patients. Um, but yeah, and so now, now I kind of, you know, when I'm testing my participants, I, 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 I keep this, um, you know, the, gra- the figure one, um, I keep it in mind all the time about how, you know, someone may fall into the, into the migraine category, or maybe they've never had a migraine since their concussion, but they're experiencing persistent balance problems and, you know, maybe anxiety and depression. Um, but again, they've never had a migraine. So it's, it's kind of interesting to just keep it in the back of my mind as I'm testing, not only my participants either, but the athletes that I uh, test as part of the care consortium as well. Um, it's just, it's totally changed my way of thinking about, you know, concussions and, and how everyone's different. And again, the way it can sort of guide their rehab or their, the management of it. So. Kelsey, you kind of, you kind of mentioned it briefly, but for those who are 
for those who know like what a concussion is, but don't necessarily understand like the clinical profiles, can you give like a very like brief or in-depth, however you want to do it, like overview of what those clinical profiles are? Mm-hmm. So um, all the credit goes to the pit people, <laughs> um, but so they, they came up with these six different clinical profiles. Um, so basically it's, Cognitive, cervical, psychological health, uh, vestibular, ocular motor, and uh, post-traumatic migraine are the are the six kind of big ones. Um, and the way I I just think this figure one graph is beautiful because it it so perfectly shows how you know even though you have these six categories. Um, one person could primarily fall into one of the categories. And that would be their kind of the thing that they're reporting all the time that bothers mm-hmm. them the most. Um, but then secondary or even tertiary to that is, are all these other symptoms that they mm-hmm. may be experiencing. And so, you know, it's, um, I guess, do you want me to specifically describe each, each category? Is if you it- mind, just like a very brief, just like a very brief. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the cervical group is, um, you know, cervical spine in your neck. It's, it's kind of just dealing with if, if you're having a lot of, you know, neck pain, headaches related to that, um, which differs from the migraine category, which, mm-hmm. you know, obviously there's a difference between headache and migraine. So, right. you know, the migraine category, you've, you've got the light sensitivity, the nausea, you know, you're hiding under the covers in a pitch black room type of thing, um, which unfortunately is, is all too common, at least in right. the people that I've, I've had to, um, or that I've tested. Um, there's a cognitive group where these people are, are likely to, um, primarily report issues with memory, concentration, um, attention, you know, maybe planning, remembering where things were, that executive function. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the cognitive one. And then psychological health is, uh, you know, if there's lingering anxiety or depression, things like that. Um, And then uh, there's vestibular and ocular motor, which um, I even sometimes get them confused because they, they blend so nicely together. Right. But um, vestibular is just kind of more specifically balance mm-hmm. um, type of thing, just to sort of give a very brief <laughs> explanation. Yeah, but, and then the ocular motor is just more eye movements. So we can kind of, um, you know, there's a specific type of test that we do that that pieces apart the vestibular from the ocular motor. And I believe Pitt also actually created this test. Um, and so, you know, we'll get them to keep their head still and we'll move their eyes a whole bunch. If that's going to affect them, they might be in the ocular group. Um, I've had patients where they get through all the eye movements totally fine, but as soon as they are sort of told to focus on one, um, something in the background essentially, and then keep their eyes focused on that, but move their head back and forth or up and down that can really throw them off. Mm -hmm. Um, so that would be kind of the more vestibular side of things. Um, yeah. And I think that's all, I think I hit all six. That was a really good explanation. I just wanted to get that out there. So people that are listening and don't necessarily understand like the really like nitty gritty of concussion. Like when people think of concussion, they think, well, one people think it's, it's still just getting your bell wrong, which we know is not a a good Mm -hmm. way to classify it. But 
when people think of concussion, they'll think of loss of consciousness, which we know is not necessarily yeah. high, or they'll think of, you know, you have a headache or whatever, but they not, might not necessarily understand like these really specific profiles. So that's a really good explanation because I think the trend now that concussion management's going is very like individualized. Like you can't give the same recommendations to the, to, you know, one athlete versus another one patient versus another, because their responses could be way different yeah. based on the same recommendations. Yeah. It's definitely not a one size fits all type of approach. No, absolutely not. Kelsey kind of jumping off of that hmm. and you've had some unique kind of experiences being with the care consortium and doing a lot of testing and stuff. Would you say that there are certain sort of targeted interventions that work best for certain profiles? Like if I wanted to manage an athlete who had a vestibular profile versus a migraine, mm-hmm. have you seen like certain interventions work best for certain profiles? Because that's something that I've been kind of interested in when reading this research. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, you know, I'll, I'll piggyback off your example there, but vestibular versus migraine. So someone who had more of a vestibular issue, um, they would likely, they would more likely benefit from going to physical therapy. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, specifically a PT who maybe specializes in, in vestibular rehab. Um, they'll, get, they'll get them to do all these crazy things, you know, the, the head back and forth constantly and different, I'm sure different speeds and different directions and stuff like that. Um, whereas someone who probably primarily complains of, of, of migraines um, can be equally as detrimental to their lifestyle. But someone like that, they would probably mostly benefit from medications. Um, there's a lot of, there's actually, I forget what they're called, but there's these specific types of injections that I've seen numerous people who primarily complain of persistent migraines. Mm -hmm. Um, they get these injections and they're for the most part, they disappear or they may go from having one every single day to one a month or one every three weeks or, or something like that. So, um, yeah, to answer your question, there, there's definitely yeah. different types of rehabilitations for these different types of clinical profiles. And I think that's that's a huge kind of expansion off of, of this group identifying these profiles um, is, yeah, you, you can focus on, you know, if, if they're falling into one specific category um, or even you know, I'll, I'll use another example, but even if they're primarily complaining of migraines, but they also do have some vestibular issues, you don't want to just treat the migraine with some sort of medication. You also maybe want to control the migraines first, bring Mm -hmm. them down a little bit, but then you want to start visiting the possibility of going to PT to attack those vestibular issues, but you also don't want to send them to vestibular PT too soon and then start aggravating those migraines. So it's this kind of beautiful balance of, of medicine here. And I I love it. (laughs) I think it's, that that was, that was a very good explanation of the individualized management of concussion. Like you just can't tell an athlete or a patient or whoever just to sit in a room for a week and expect them to be okay after like, we seem to work with like Letty and stuff like that, where like active, rehabilitation targeted interventions early on are effective in getting people back, you know, to sport, back to work, what have you, but recognizing that not a concussion just isn't a concussion. It's a certain trajectory. It's a certain 
you know, certain symptomatology, certain response to the injury that I think people just really need to recognize, especially with like younger athletes too. Yeah. Cause there's always issues with recognition and younger athletes, ice hockey players in particular have I've seen have had issues with like recognizing the injury at first, but mm-hmm. then now realizing there are certain profiles that they may fit under. If you as a clinician or you as, you know, a provider don't necessarily look at it from that perspective, you might be giving some information that could exacerbate the issues. Yeah. Would you say that's a correct kind of way to think of it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was a good way to put it. And you get, I've learned more on, on concussion in the last 20 minutes than I ever had in my life. I mean, this is like... Wait a minute, we lived together for like two years. I know, I know, but like, you, you know... everything. We, we, you know, we would talk about like like the one concept, and like now right. it's like, you know, it's uh, I feel like a fly on the wall. You guys should think about it. Except it's relatively you know. new. I mean, it's a relatively new idea that yeah. hasn't really been proposed until the last few years. I mean, everyone... Yeah. I mean, concussion research in and of itself is, is very new, right? The last 10 to 15 years, we've seen such a, like, you go into PubMed right now, and you look at the number of publications by year in the last 20 years, it's an exponential rise. And it's really oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really pretty interesting because like, even from the motor learning background, our field has just gotten to the tip of looking at injury and injury prevention. Right. Uh, you know, could we were more focused on just skill learning. Uh, right. So it's a little different now, which is – Pretty cool. So I know Kelsey, we talked about this a little off air, but um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the topic of your um, dissertation project and what led you sort of to go down this route? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so <laughs> this kind of expands off of what we just talked about, and you know, athletes. And <laughs> um, but I, I, I started really seriously researching concussions in my fifth year of my undergrad. Um, I did an honors thesis and that's where I did, you know, what I know now is kind of a typical sort of data mining type of project and looked at history of concussion and looked at how they performed on a specific test. And and that was my project. Um, And then I just found that I had more and more questions. So I really started looking into like, what even is a concussion? How do we fix it? You know? Um, and over the years, I, I sort of, and throughout my master's, I, I realized that so much of this research was focused on athletes, um, whether it was, you know, young kids, high school, college, professional, um, it was always athletes. Um, and then I started realizing, you know, th- there's more, there's more than just athletes out there. Um, and you know, it, it was kind of a twofold, um, way that I approached it. So first it, I noticed it was all athletes and I wanted to focus on kind of, you know, the average everyday person, you and me, we, we got jobs, families, got to go to the grocery store, you got to drive, you know, maybe the kids around or something like that. Um, you know, I've met a lot of patients who can't drive anymore. So how do they function? And so I started hearing these stories just from people who knew what I was doing as a concussion researcher, but it was, you know, people in their thirties or forties saying, Oh, I got a concussion. And you know, that was nine months ago and I'm still not okay. Like, what do I do? And I just kept thinking like, I don't know, what do you do? (laughs) Because on athletes, like you even approach this kind of thing. Um, And so that's kind of why I picked the, the adult population. Um, you know, my age range is 25 to 65. So I'm really trying to target 
people who are outside of college, they likely have a job, family, that kind of thing. Um, and then um, alongside that, I also noticed that most, most of the stuff that was being done really heavily focused on the acute uh, mm-hmm. concussion world. So like within those seven to 10 days following the injury, um, tons of stuff on that. Great, great research on that. Um, but I wanted to know, you know, going back to the story that I heard, this person's nine months out from their concussion and they're still symptomatic. So what do we do about that? Um, and so I started looking into that even more and realized there's also nothing on that. It was just kind of like, I found this huge gap that no one had really attacked yet. Um, and when I tried to dig into sort of like chronic issues in adults, uh, a lot of the hits I was getting in terms of the research was, um, the military population. So I thought, you know, okay, that, that at least kind of guides me in sort of a direction in terms of like age range and people with jobs and families. But at the same time, not everyone is, is in the military. So I'm talking about your average everyday person, their nine to five job, they got to drive to their job, they got to drive the kids around, got to go grocery shopping once a week type of person. Um, And I, I couldn't find anything on that. Mm -hmm. So that's what kind of led me to my dissertation topic was I I found this group of kind of underdogs in the research world or in the concussion research world and just kind of ran with it. Um, So my dissertation focuses on adults who are 25 to 65 years old um, and they're experiencing persistent symptoms from a concussion, uh, whether again, they fall into one or two or many of these clinical profiles, it doesn't matter. They're just experiencing persistent symptoms. Um, I bring them into the lab. I do a whole bunch of clinical stuff that I've adapted from, you know, the the student athlete literature, professional athlete literature. Um, a lot of those kind of common sideline or, or acute um, tests. And but I think, as you mentioned in the beginning, I'm in the Department of Biomechanics, so we also are uh, collecting a lot of motion capture data. Um, and that side of things, we're looking at kind of single task and dual task, um, cognitive motor, uh, assessments. And so basically I'll get people to walk a whole bunch. They walk normally and then they stand and they answer a bunch of questions for me. And then I get them to do walking and answering questions at the same time. And I see kind of what happens between the single task and dual task. Uh, but then I'm also comparing the adults with persistent symptoms to healthy controls. So mm-hmm. to see if they differ from that. So, yeah. That's Seems like of- you got a lot on your plate. Yeah, Kelsey mentioned off the air that she's doing the, <laughs> how typical dissertations work for people who don't necessarily know the full like nitty gritty of it. You typically can do like a three study dissertation mm-hmm. or it's three separate studies that kind of go linear in progression. The first study leads off the second, leads off to the final. Mm-hmm. But Kelsey does a single project, which I would never do, to be quite honest with you, based on what I've seen, how these work, but just massive amounts of data and I, just a huge just document of just one project. So I commend you on, on taking that dive in there because I don't think I would will. <laughs> do the same thing that's why i'm a fifth year <laughs> kelsey um, i know you did i know you talked uh well first of all i really i really enjoyed listening uh to to what how you got to the topic of your dissertation um and you're right i think a lot of it has to do with you know the how concussions have been normally affiliated with athlete populations right yeah um 
And so my question to you is what, uh, and you touched on it a little bit, uh, what is the incidence of concussion uh, in the non-athlete population? That is a great question. Um, there are so many numbers that are reported between Canada and the U.S., <laughs> you know, different groups. And is there any, like, is there any, like, job-specific outside of, like, athletes and military that are at higher risk? I don't know if it's job specific, but, um, or like mechanisms of injury, I guess. Yeah. So mechanisms of injury. Um, I think, Oh, I'm going off of memory right now, but it's, uh, I think top three is, uh, car accidents. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Falls. Mm -hmm. Uh, believe it or not, domestic violence. Oh yeah. Yep. Those are kind of the top three. If you're looking at your average everyday person and you know, I, unfortunately know people who have been in all three of those situations mm-hmm. and have come out with a brain injury. And so, you know, it's, it's flukish things that happen on a daily basis in our normal lives. And yet, you know, like that person I, I told you about nine months out, they're still suffering from it. So, right. Yeah. So yeah no I, explicit number for you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fair. I mean, it's a, it's an yeah. evolving field, right? Like there's so much information we don't know yet about this injury. We've learned a lot the last decade or so but there's a lot that we just don't know yet yeah for sure it, you know me and jason and i share some of passions with like uh you know acl injuries and stuff and even with acl injuries i mean it's it's been reported okay but it's different here and there you know it's like all right you know um so i have a quick follow-up to that is i know a recent literature has in the ACL world shown that there's um, certain brain activation patterns prior to an injury that can predispose you to, to an injury. So my question is, have you guys, this is to both of you, um, have you guys seen anything that's like, oh, I, this can predispose you to a concussive event? Um, sort of something like that. Maybe like, I know Jason and I have talked about this, maybe, maybe a previous musculoskeletal injury you know, I have, has. I have some thoughts on that, Kelsey, if you okay. want to lead off though. <laughs> um so yeah um my my research is so heavily focused on kind of what might be a risk factor for persistent symptoms so um you know in that regard i can say like having uh pre-morbid anxiety and depression can, right. can definitely kind of exacerbate um those issues following a brain injury um, there's, there's several papers that report just being female is actually a risk yep. factor. Yep. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of some others. The ones that I've come across are learning disabilities and ADHD are mm-hmm. other ones too, that could potentially predispose an athlete for a higher risk, not only for the concussion itself, but for prolonged recovery. And as Kelsey mentioned too, being a female athlete, uh, due to, there's a couple different mechanisms, but I think the strong, again, this is me speculating, but I think some of the strongest ones is the head and neck strength. Mm-hmm. I think the difference is there between males and females. But honestly, though, it could just be a reporting issue, right? Like males are just less, are just more, excuse me, more reluctant to actually report a concussion, whereas females are generally more open. But it's a, the mechanism part's really tricky and it's a yeah. lot of things don't know about that. You know, it's but just, I'm uh, get into actually at some it's point. It's just a question I, I figured I'd ask because, I know you're looking at, you know, uh, musculoskeletal injury post-concussion. Right. And I can just imagine the other way around as well. Uh, but again, I don't know the, the mechanisms. I just, 
I guess this is more work for us to do. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, so kind of kind of going following up with some of your dissertation work specifically in like the non-athlete population. Um, like athletes tend to go through a pretty standard protocol, right? Like they report symptoms, they'll go through some some balance testing, they'll do like impact, some sort of cognitive test, maybe do some gait analysis, different things like or king divot bombs, what have you. Yeah. From your experiences with like in the workforce population, if someone if someone from like the workforce has like a trip or fall or like a car accident, have what have you, does their treatment differ from athletes or is it generally like is it generally similar? Like is there something that like a providing clinician might do a little differently with an athlete compared to a non-athlete? Um yeah, I would almost say they're like on two different ends of the spectrum. Oh, really? Oh yeah. Um, especially like, so I'm specifically thinking of like college athletes and professional athletes. Um, but typically, you know, especially in the U S there is always, you know, an athletic trainer, there's likely a team physician there on call. Um, and I think, you know, between coaches and teammates, people are always looking out to, to see if a teammate is acting funny or whatever. So the identification, and immediate assessment of those concussions for athletes is, is very quick. Um, and you know, if, if the team physician is usually right there so they can diagnose it, um, they can start the, you know, don't do anything for 24 to 48 hours, then come see me. We'll reassess. We'll get you to do symptom checklist every day. We're going to get you walking, get that heart rate up. We're mm. going to see how much you can tolerate. And it's like, you know, day after day, hour after hour, these athletes are, are being followed up so closely. Whereas, you know, adults, um, you know, I, I think maybe if you get a car in a car accident, it might be a, a different story that that might trigger something in you to like, oh, I should go to the hospital, see a doctor. But I mean, if you fall in your house, if you, you know, accidentally walk into a wall or you're reaching for something, it falls in your head. I've heard all of these stories. These are real stories. Um, if something like that happens to you and it, it, you know, something bonks you in the head and, and you walk away from it, like, Oh, that hurt, but you know, whatever. Um, I think right off the bat, the likelihood of someone thinking they have a concussion from something like that mm-hmm. is probably much lower. Um, I think I read earlier today or maybe yesterday that like, it's estimated 25% of people who actually get a concussion in this kind of adult age range mm-hmm. don't actually do anything about it. Like they don't go to a doctor. They just sort of deal with it on their own. I think the percentage is way higher. Um, oh yeah, yeah. 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 But then in terms of follow-up, let's say these people will we'll follow the people who do go to, you know, their family physician, maybe a walk-in or the emergency mm-hmm. room. Um, from, from what I've heard from a lot of my, uh, participants and just shadowing a doctor who kind of specializes in these. Um, I've heard a lot of stories and it seems like most people are told, you know, sit, go, go home. Don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Wait till you feel better. Um, if you're not feeling better in, you know, a, a week or two, come back and see me. Um, they're not followed up with every day. Yeah. They're just kind of told, you know, hang out till you feel better essentially. Um, and I think like you said earlier, you know, it's not just athletes, you put anyone in a dark room for more than a day and they're going to lose their minds. Um, but that's essentially what a lot of people are still being told. Um, 
And so, and then you think they've got a job, they've got a family, they might have to go grocery shopping that day. Um, it's, it's a lot to ask sometimes for people to just sit around and do nothing. Um, well, especially if they're still experiencing symptoms too. Like yeah. you mentioned the driving thing. I know there's more driving research being done now and yeah. how concussion affects driving performance. I can just imagine the scenario where someone like you mentioned is in like the workforce and they're still symptomatic and they have to drive. Like if they have to go on the highway or something like that could be kind of a dangerous scenario, but like if no one's telling you what to do to manage the injury, like you're still going to have to go to your job unless like for some reason you're allowed to, you know, take time off if you're even working from home or whatever, that's a whole different scenario. But it's just like being able to do activities of daily living, but then being symptomatic or just trying to manage the injury could could lead to some bad scenarios potentially. And I think time it's it's you know you look at the athletes who might be so symptomatic they can't go to class or something well they've got a doctor from their athletic trainer they've got a note from their athletic trainer from their doctor from you know people who they're doing therapy with or whatever to say that they can't do this so them getting an an excuse from you know class or something like that is a lot easier than Mm -hmm. you know your average everyday person trying to get out of work because they have a brain injury you can get all the notes you want but work's going to say you know you've got a couple days but then you got to come back and i've heard it all the time where people you know they they go to work the day that they get their injury because they don't think anything of it the next day they feel like crap so they go to their doctor they you know maybe get a day or two off from Mm -hmm. work and then they're right back at it because they can't lose that money they you know they they have to they just have to go um, and work is, you know, half the time working is making them come back. So it's a whole nother kind of beast when you're talking about this. Adult. It's almost like, it's almost like they need to like the workforce and this would obviously be very like field specific, like adopt like the return to learn models Yeah. with like accommodations and things like that. So that someone could get back into the work, work and back into the workforce. Right. And, you know, be productive or whatever, and not be symptomatic. I think that's, something that I don't know would be interesting something I just it thought of that's where we come in yeah exactly exactly <laughs> develop it so Kelsey just as uh as we kind of wrap up here you have a really diverse background in the field of concussion you know being in the in the trenches in the care consortium and doing you know the the current dissertation work mm-hmm. and we ask this question to everybody as kind of like a wrap-up what's something let's one takeaway like big kind of picture takeaway that someone who's listening who's like a practitioner a clinician or even a researcher like ourselves can kind of take away from your experiences that you've had managing this injury? Um, I mean, the, the biggest thing is to remember that it's such an individual um, thing and that, you know, not, not everyone's the same. You, there's a saying, I don't know if you've heard it, um, uh, Jason, but the, you know, once you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. Oh yeah. 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 Um, So I think, in the research world, it's a little different. I think we're a lot more aware of that and that things are, you know, just very individualized. Again, going back to the clinical profiles I mentioned, you know, people will fall into different categories in their own unique way. And I think, you know, who, care providers need to be aware of that. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing is just, you know, these people need to be taken seriously. If they're, if they're mm-hmm. complaining about persistent issues, they have an injury you can't see. We all know that. Right. Um, an invisible injury, it's hard to, you know, confirm. There's no imaging. There's no be-all, end-all diagnostic tool for this, this type yep. of injury. So 
I think the biggest thing is just for, you know, especially clinicians to believe the patient when they say they're suffering from some sort of persistent issue, regardless of what it is, believe them. Don't write them off that, you know, oh, you're complaining of a headache, whatever, take Mm -hmm. Advil and you'll be fine one day. Um, I think people need to be aware that there, there is something more going on and that you need to really look into that injury and, and look into basically what they're complaining about and all their different options to, to help that. So it's, it's interesting that you kind of mentioned it from that perspective, because it's almost like it's almost backwards in that, like the sport research Mm -hmm. is leading the, like the, the other clinical population research. Like we've done so much sport concussion research that we know there's clinical profiles and stuff like that, how we can manage athletes, but now taking this into the workforce or in like the military, I think is really where the biggest applications for this are going to be. Cause you know, sport concussion, there's a lot of them. We know that, but like military populations, mm-hmm. trips and falls, vehicle accidents, like you mentioned, like hundreds and hundreds of thousands every single year. Yeah. And so I think it's important, you know, the information that Kelsey shared in this, in this episode is, you know, being able to manage it on a case by case basis and not giving everyone the same recommendations because mm-hmm. it could potentially lead to not the outcomes that you're looking for. Yep. Thanks, Kelsey. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time today. We know you got a, a busy schedule coming up heading back to Delaware, but if people want to reach out to you, it's social media, research, Gator, whatever, what are, uh, where are some places to find you? Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is uh, She's a Brick House. <laughs> I get a lot of comments on that one. Uh, Brick spelt B-R-Y-K, my last name. Um, Yeah, other than that, I mean, I'm easy to find on the University of Delaware website. I think all our contact information is there. So, and I love to chat about this stuff. So, if anyone and everyone. We'll we'll, we'll link those things onto. Yeah, we'll link everything. We'll link the article that Kelsey uh, shared with us as well, the Contos article when she was referring to the clinical profiles. I'd highly recommend people to take a look at that one because it is a really good, they have some really great figures in that. Hmm. But, uh, Kelsey, we thank thank you again for uh, taking the time to chat with us. I know I'll probably be following up with you because I'm, you know, interested in this and some of the work that you guys are doing. Yeah. But, uh, we wish you the best of luck as you try to wrap up the, the dissertation project because Harjeev and I are in the same boat as you. <laughs> we're, in our, we're really in the final gear here trying to yeah. navigate this. But take yeah. care, safe travels back to Delaware, and best wishes finishing up. We'll follow up with you for sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks.